นโมตัสสะบกุวะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะบกุวะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะบกุวะตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามสังLovely to see so many of our good friends gathering together this evening. Uh, obviously, once a year we take the opportunity to uh, mark our good fortune, to celebrate our good fortune, and having uh, the teachings um, from the Lord Buddha. Don't have to look very far in the world to realize that uh, there's uh, a lot of people who don't have anything like uh, this uh, confidence, this clarity, this good fortune, and so it's not something that we want to uh, take for granted. It's quite the opposite. Something we'd like to put time aside and and value uh, our good fortune. So the uh, what we've so far what we've been doing with the uh, the ritual devotion, the offering of candles, flowers, and incense, and chanting, and uh, shortly we'll uh, have the opportunity to uh, process down the hill with beautifully prepared candles and flowers, and uh, do a circumambulation of the lake, and do a little bit more puja down there. This is the. Uh, If you like the form of our devotion, we have these uh, traditional forms, these ways of expressing our gratitude to the teacher. But um, all of us, I'm sure, would know that uh, the Buddha wanted us to uh, see beyond merely the forms of the uh, tradition and get to know for ourselves directly the spirit, the essence of these teachings. So. Uh, you know the form, the way things appear to be, can be very convincing. You know, bodies and and buildings and and uh, these things, money and rituals and traditions, all of these things have a very big impact on us. But if we invest too much in merely the forms of, for instance, religion, it's going to let us down. As I was saying again to the the group this morning that. Uh, If some scurrilous individual came and stole our Buddha image, of course we'd be disappointed. But it wouldn't actually make any difference to Buddhism. Make a difference to them. It's not a good thing to do. Uh, but Buddhism doesn't depend on Buddha images, even if, if they're as beautiful as the one that we have here. And similarly, Buddhism doesn't depend upon the books that we have in the Tripitaka case back down there. And the, What the Buddha wanted us to appreciate, and he spoke about this quite directly, was the spirit behind the form. The forms have their point; they remind us. They, if you like, they orient us. I, I think of the traditions and the forms of religion as being like, like a, a compass and and a map. You know, the compass, this kind of brass and glass thing, and a map, a bit of paper. In themselves, they're nothing. But if we learn how to use them, 
they can orient us. But they, the point is, do we know how to use them? That's the point. Yeah. Or if you're a little bit high-tech, maybe you've got a sat-nav on your smartphone. And, but it's the same thing. You can have several sat-navs on your smartphone. But if we don't know how to use them, they're actually not very useful to us. And similarly, with all the religious forms and conventions, if we don't know how to use them, if we don't really give ourselves to learning to understand and to follow the direction in which the Buddha was pointing, then we are, in fact, missing the point. We're not getting the benefit that the Buddha wanted us to receive. So on this occasion of uh, uh, honouring our teacher, honouring the Buddha, maybe we could spend some time together this evening uh, really looking into this, considering what is the spirit, what is the essence behind the forms of the teachings and traditions that we have. What does it mean in practice? Yes, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. And and, uh, this is something we do, hopefully, with focus, with respect, and and with awareness, with attention. But in daily life practice, what does that mean? How How do we translate that? I was thinking about this um, earlier and, and remembering a, uh, a situation we had in the dining hall here in the monastery where those of you that come regularly will have noticed that, uh, that there's, uh, there's this platform built up the front of the, the, um, the dining hall now and it's um, because I've reached a stage of decrepitude that uh, <laughs> I can't sit on the floor anymore. Here we are now with arthritis, and so so be it. And I'm very grateful to Ajahn Punyu and those who helped get this uh, platform set up there so I can now sit um, without um, being in agony. But uh, it happened very quickly after this platform was built that uh, I noticed off here to my left that uh, I've got a gong, which you've probably seen, which I ring before the meal. It's time for us all to start eating. And But somebody would come before the meal... And they would put the tray with my water jug and glass down and they put it down in a way whereby I couldn't access the gong. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, tomorrow they'll get it because this is a new setup. And they didn't get it tomorrow. And the next day they didn't get it. And I thought, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they just see that they're sticking the water jug in a way whereby I'm, you know, inconvenienced and... Uh, I didn't count the days, but I am embarrassed to admit that it took me quite a few days before I realised that all I had to do was just to turn the gong three centimetres and it was perfectly all right. I had complete free access to the gong and the water jug process just happened as it happened and nobody knew about this uh, suffering that I'd been going through. And, but I don't suffer anymore over that. Um, but it did, for me, I, I confess, it illustrated... Uh, a principle that there is this habit we have of somehow thinking it's somebody else's fault that we're suffering. This is not just once or twice, this is over and over again. So I would suggest that this is one way we could look at the teachings of the Buddha and reflect on the good fortune that we have, that we have this reminder to regularly invest in the awareness which encourages us to look in the direction the Buddha was pointing. 
Now, when the Buddha set off at the age of 29, he was miserable. You know, the Buddha wasn't enlightened at the age of 29. And uh, it wasn't because he didn't have a lot of wealth or convenience or there wasn't a good political system available for him. All of these things were hugely convenient, but he was unhappy and confused. And he went out on the search trying to find the solution. And in a way, this, this is emblematic of what we also are doing. In honoring the Buddha, what we're doing is we're prioritizing what really matters, what really matters most in life. Yes, as I was saying, buildings matter, our health matters, money matters, our reputation sort of matters. These things sort of matter, but we all know that at some stage or other in life they're going to let us down, we're going to feel disappointed. The Buddha had this question, what matters most? And after his years of searching he realized that what matters most is that to come to the understanding that suffering is not an obligation. Pain is part of the package. Pain is part of the package. You get born with a sensitive organism here, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. All of these things can get hurt. So the Buddha never realized, never escaped from pain, at least not permanently, managed to find ways of momentarily escaping from it. But what he did realize was there's this possibility of not adding anything extra to life. What we experience is suffering, disappointment, frustration, despair, loneliness, worry, anxiety, fear, doubt. All of that's extra. And so the inspiration that brings us all here today and has been doing this for tens of thousands, millions of people for the last two and a half thousand years is this possibility. This possibility that human beings can realize freedom from suffering. But he was saying that it's not by emphasizing the external world. He didn't say forget about the external world. He wasn't a life denier. We do need to pay attention to the external world, but we need to prioritize the internal world. This is where clarity, this is where wisdom, this is where liberation can take place. And so in our uh, wish, our interest to honor the Buddha, there's this encouragement to pay attention inwards, to look in the direction the Buddha was pointing. Now, this is important because, again, if we're, if we're overly materialistic, we just look at the forms, you know, busy trying to photograph life all the time instead of actually meeting it, sensing it, and going with it. Yeah. We want to actually follow the direction the Buddha was pointing. Well, animals of less sophisticated perceptions than us, when you point in a certain direction, what do they do? They look at your finger, right? You're trying to tell a dog, you know, look over there, you know, look over, and they're just busy looking at your finger. Yeah. Well, we can actually do that. We can we can be busy, you know, looking at the Buddha image or looking at the scriptures, or looking at the concepts, the wonderful, wonderful teachings the Buddha gave. They're so impressive, and as far as I'm concerned, the most impressive collection of human concepts that ever existed on the planet. But we're not supposed to just look at the concepts. We're not just supposed to look at the the beautiful Buddha image. But rather we're supposed to look in the direction that the Buddha was pointing. And the direction the Buddha was pointing was this, that actually we human beings, we all suffer. 
We all suffer. We all worry about things and go to bed at night worrying about things, wake up in the morning worrying about things. And even when you live in a world of huge convenience and good fortune, we still, we still can't stop thinking. And even thinking is an amazing thing. I mean, you know, not everybody in the world knows how to think like we do. We're some of the world's greatest thinkers. You, know, you might think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. You know, the vast majority of the world's population don't have the education that we do, which teaches us how to think. But even thinking, we kind of spoil it. We, you know, we can't stop it. And so we have this predicament we find ourselves in, but what the Buddha wanted us to know was it's not an obligation. And the reason we suffer is because we don't understand. We don't see clearly. In other words, the reason we don't see clearly is because consciousness, this process we live out of, is distorted. It's disfigured. It's another way of putting it. It's polluted. And the Buddha identified these pollutions: the greed, aversion, and delusion. That's it. That's. You don't have to overly complicate things. You say, well, "This is it. These are three forms of pollution, or three forms of distortion of consciousness: greed, aversion, and delusion." And he said, "If we're skillful, if we're careful, we can get to recognize them." And then the good news is you can see beyond them, see that which is beyond the distortions, the pollutions. And that was his experience, the purification of heart, that consciousness that is completely free from greed, aversion and delusion. So this is what the Buddha taught them. This is what we're celebrating today. This is what we're grateful for. The Buddha and all the great teachers that have ever lived since the Buddha, uh, including our teacher, Ajahn Chah, and this being the, uh, the first Sunday of the month, as uh, I like to comment on the teaching that we have on our calendar page for this month. And those of you that have our calendar and have looked at it will have seen that Ajahn Chah says that the teacher does not free us from greed, aversion and delusion. But he tells us about it. Then we practice and we reach realization. This is something we understand for ourselves. So the teacher doesn't free us from greed, aversion and delusion. He tells us about these things. And then we practice, reach realization. We understand these things for ourselves. Or the word that the, the Buddha used is pachatang. When we do the chanting, pachatang medita bo when you he. This is something to be experienced. Again, something... That's distinct about the Buddha's teaching, something we can rightly feel hugely grateful for. The Buddha didn't just give us a belief system. Not just a belief system, but something we can do until we arrive at a shift in understanding, a shift in perception, and learn something for ourselves. Pachatang, coming to realize that this suffering is not an obligation. In fact, the suffering that we experience is something that we're doing. Yeah. We're doing this all the time. We're doing it. And the Buddha wanted to see how, where, and when we're doing it. So the Buddha's teaching is not a belief system. It's, uh, if you, as I said before, it's like a map. We're, we've been given this map. We've been given the compass. And we can skillfully orient our lives in a way whereby we can follow the map until we hopefully come to realize uh, what the Buddha was talking about. 
So the uh, encouragement is to cultivate the awareness, which means that we, we reflect on, we have the awareness which is interested in asking questions. Yeah. Again, this uh, wonderful awareness, this wonderful consciousness we as human beings have, the important thing is to use it in a way whereby we want to ask the right questions at the right time. Yeah. But this is a training. This is not just a belief system that we can hold on to. It's not just an ideal that we can idolize and then bow down to, but it's something that we can invest in and reflect upon. When we're suffering, why? What's it all about? Are we willing, are we daring to ask that question, to really look into that question? If we're just interested and keen on the forms, if we're just busy taking photographs of life but not living it, then you know, when suffering comes along, we jump up and down and blame somebody for it. There's a very well-known teaching story many of you would have been familiar with, I'm sure, of uh, a, uh, crossing the river in a boat. You're going across this river in a boat and you see another boat coming downstream towards you. And it looks like it's going to collide. And you think, wow, who is this idiot? Why is it, what's he doing? Can't he see? Yeah, this is dangerous. And you start screaming and yelling, at, get out of the way, you're going to hit me. And then as the boat gets a little bit closer, you realize there's nobody in the boat, it's empty. And so what do you do? You get out of the way. Well, that's different. That's a shift. You know, we realize that we don't have to be sending our attention out and expecting the world to change to suit us, we can just turn the gong three centimetres and that's it, sorted. Or whatever else it is we need to do. But it means taking responsibility. It means instead of looking outwards for the solution to our suffering, looking inwards and saying, what am I doing? How am I contributing to this? And it's it's a daring thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not. It doesn't. It's not immediately obvious to us. It's not immediately attractive to us. You know, uh, sometimes it's easier to blame. You know, like the um, the predicament we have at the moment with the uh, the politicians all displaying their wares and trying to convince us. And uh, it's easy to get indignant at the politicians and their promises and, and shenanigans that they're getting up to. It's easy to get indignant. Actually, indignation is a cheap hit. There are these opportunities to get a cheap hit out of life, get indignant, eat junk food. We can do better than that. And this is the, the invitation by the Buddha, who made huge sacrifice, not just for the last life he was living, but for many lives, made huge sacrifice to show us that it's possible to change the way we perceive life so that we don't buy into this feeling, this perception, that suffering is an obligation. Suffering is not an obligation. But to be that daring takes effort. The Buddha himself and his life, as I said, made huge sacrifice. Ajahn Chah and his life... Was very daring. If you, 
If you haven't, I recommend that you read Ajahn Chah's anthology. There's uh, free copies of it available on the monastery. I encourage you to take it away and read it and become familiar with the sacrifice that's called for if we really want to realize what the Buddha was pointing towards. If we don't want to just believe in what the Buddha was saying, but realize what the Buddha was realizing, then we can seek, we can find inspiration from these great teachers. Now, I hasten to add that doesn't mean to say that I'm expecting everybody to go off and shave their head and become a monk or a nun. That's, even the Buddha didn't say that. But rather, in our daily life, in our everyday life experience, recognizing that if we exercise just a little bit of daring to go against the habits that we've accumulated of blaming, of always looking outside at the world for the causes of our suffering, instead of always looking outside and blaming to stop and feel inwardly, what am I contributing to this? Now, if we if we do this, if we stop and feel inwards, look inwards, listen inwards, then we can start to discover for ourselves. So there is this thing that we're doing that, again, the Buddha spoke about over and over again called clinging. Yeah? But it's something that we need to not just believe in, but something that we need to make the effort to come to see for ourselves. Yeah? If we have the good fortune of... Uh, Dhamma friends who hold up the mirror to us at just the right time and Dhamma teachers who point these things out to us, well, that's really fortunate because the habits are very strong. It's it's so easy when you start suffering to blame somebody else. But that's why we have these traditions. That's why we have these practices. That's why we do the bowing. That's why we do the chanting. It's not just because people before us did it, but because it helps orient all of ourselves, all of our body, all of our speech, all of our hearts, all of our minds in this direction to come to see for ourselves what are we doing, when are we doing, what we do that turns life, which is just so, into a problem. Life is not a problem. You know, the Buddha lived on this planet just like we do. Ajahn Chah did the same problems that we have, but they didn't suffer. Why didn't they suffer? Because they realized how to stop doing what we're doing, when we're doing it, and let go. But this letting go, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. So we need to help each other with this. So another good reason for coming together like this and sharing in a group celebration, reminding ourselves we're not all in this alone. Now, sometimes when you're caught up in your suffering, you think, oh, nobody suffers like me. I mean, it's very easy to think like that. Nobody suffers as much as I do. We all benefit when we hear the teachings. And we all suffer when we forget the teachings. I remember when uh, I was first ordained in Thailand, uh, there was a group of four of us uh, ordained by Ajahn Chah, something like, I think it was 1976, and there was an Australian fellow, a uh, guitar player, and the American fellow was a psychiatrist from Los Angeles, and then there was a British um, sailor, I think, he, he, uh, became a friend of mine and myself, the four of us. And, and this British guy, he, um, he had a reputation for being very restless. You might have heard about um, the occasion where he went to see Ajahn Chah and he was just once again complaining about 
this monk or that monastery where an Ajahn Chah said, you know, he said, do you like one of those people that's, we've got monks, we've got these shoulder bags, and he says it's like a dog has done its droppings in your shoulder bag, and everywhere you go, you say, God, it stinks here, doesn't it? What's the stink around here? He says, well, that stink is something you're carrying with you. There's kind of a bad smell that comes with this, always blaming the world, always blaming somebody else. I'm sure we've seen it, um, and maybe within ourselves. But the encouragement the Buddha gave was to invest in the awareness that sees that this is something we can do something about. We can stop reacting by as the psychotherapists would say, projecting. It's a a helpful uh, concept that psychology has given us, this this concept of projecting, where we we invest, we project our heart energy out onto external conditions. We project responsibility out onto the past. So if this hadn't happened in the past, if that hadn't happened in the past, then I would... uh, Do we have to do that? Do we have to blame the past? Mm-hmm. Or external conditions, the weather, yeah. the environment. Yeah. Is it an obligation to blame the external conditions? Uh, this habit of projection, it's something that the concept itself is very useful. We can stop and think about it. But again, the invitation that uh, we have in the Buddha's teaching is to not just think about it, but to slow down, to really slow down, to really slow down, to stop talking, to put the gadgets aside. In fact, turn the gadgets off. Have some quiet time every day. Well, at least six days a week. I, I personally recommend that, that uh, people, you want to keep it fresh. If you're just starting off a meditation practice, you want to give yourself one day off a week. So you help keep the practice fresh. But give yourself six days a week. Be modest. Ten minutes a day. Don't even have to be heroic. Don't have to do two hours a day. I, I, I hear this over and over again. People, people come to me and they say, oh, I did this retreat and I got so inspired. And, and the teacher said I did, should do two hours meditation a day. And, and I, I did it for a while. Now I'm failing. And... The Buddha praised highly modesty, actually. The Buddha praised modesty, and so 10 minutes a day is a good way to start. You know, just unplug for 10 minutes a day. Somebody came to visit the other day and was, was saying that apparently it's quite fashionable now that uh, this, uh, the, uh, the concept of unplugging, apparently mindfulness has become established in the, uh, in the world. Everybody's talking about mindfulness now, and now the next thing is unplugging, uh, which is very good. I'm happy to hear it. It's uh, something that is to be praised, to be encouraged. It's just turn off the gadgets, stop talking, and sit still. Mm. We don't even have to call it meditation. It's just the contrast that we're afforded and stillness, in and of itself, gives us another perspective. Yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes you go down to the lake down there and it's just so still. It's great. It's beautiful. Other times it's 
waves all over the place, that's fine too. But the stillness has got its own beauty. And likewise, if we can set still, still the voice and stop speaking, turn off the gadgets, and, and maybe this conduces with stilling the mind. And then you see another perspective. You start saying, oh, it's like that. That's what I'm doing. Then you start to see projection. You start to see that, that, that impulse of the mind to always move on stimulus. Yeah. It's not an obligation. But this is not something that just believing in it is going to do it for us. Uh, we're hugely grateful. We're so fortunate that the Buddha emphasized the practice of stillness. Yeah. Now, uh, those of you that have read a lot of books and come across the Buddha's teachings on samadhi and, and then set yourself up an impossible goal of having to really crack the jhanas before you're anybody, well, come back and look at the Buddha's teachings on, on modesty, mm-hmm. contentment. There's a, this process of freeing ourselves from the belief we have in deluded personality. It's like coming off an addiction. We've got to measure it. You've got to do it really carefully. I don't know if any of you have ever seen anybody going through cold turkey coming off heroin or or something similar. It's really bad news. It can be very dangerous. You've got to be very careful. Somebody's been on a drug for a long period of time, you've got to really exercise care, great care, great caution in coming off that drug. For some people, coming off the drug might mean that they they get hooked on some fundamentalist religion for a while and as a stepping stone. And if you rip away that fundamentalist religious belief, they could flip straight back into their substance abuse again. The process of coming off addiction is very delicate. calls for great caution. Well, the addiction that we have to deluded personality belief is also similarly something that we need to exercise great caution. You can listen to... Dhamma talks by great teachers and read the Buddha's scriptures and be thoroughly impressed and go on a retreat and have some sort of amazing experience and get all uplifted and inspired and make overly zealous determinations. The Buddha did encourage, you know, he said, yeah, really exercise zeal and enthusiasm and and one of my favourite Dhammapada verses, few are those who reach the beyond, most pace ceaselessly back and forth, not daring to risk the journey. Yeah. This is the Buddha speaking. Few are those who reach the beyond, most pace ceaselessly back and forth. Say, so, yeah, I want to I take the journey, I want to do it, you know, get all uplifted and get in, inspired and encouraged and then... And then lose perspective and hurt yourself. So hear these teachings, yes. Read the scriptures, yes. But also exercise mindfulness. One of my favorite all-time lists, you know, we Theravadans have all these lists that the Buddha gave, and one of them is the, the discourse the Buddha gave to the very first bhikkhuni, the first nun, Mahapajapati who wanted a summary of the Buddha's teachings so she could measure her practice and uh, wanted to know what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma. And so the Buddha gave her this list, this discourse, which 
is really worth memorizing. If it accords with this, then it is Dhamma. If it doesn't accord with this, if it accords with that, then it's not Dhamma. So there's these eight points and dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. Put it on the fridge. Use a fridge magnet. Now, if practice is going off, you don't want to just crank up the willfulness and be a little bit more circumspect. Use this intelligence that we've got, this access to the teachings, and I personally think this is one of the the greatest lists that you can turn to. Say, you know, where am I off? Dispassion. Is practice going more towards the cheap hits, getting indignant, eating more cheesecake? (laughs) Detachment. Am I just accumulating more attachments? Dispersal. Is, Is practice going towards... You know, letting go, dispersal, or accumulating. Yeah. Or modesty. You know, modesty. You know, the world, our world, of course, you know, praises amassing objects and things. Praises worshipping deluded personality belief. Praises ambition. Uh, so we need these very clear teachings and we need to invest in them if we're going to unhook ourselves from this addiction. But as I was saying also, you know, to be cautious. You know, we don't, don't want to hurt ourselves. You know, modesty is not something that the world is going to tell us about. You know, but the Buddha talked about it. You know, contentment. You know, if we want to, we want to honour the Buddha, yes, on days like this, once a year, the full moon of the month of Waisak, and celebrating and marking and expressing our our gratitude at this good fortune. Uh, we can do it with the rituals of the puja, the chanting and the, the circumambulation. But we can also do it in daily life. You know, exercising modesty. When we're getting caught up in ambition. Exercising kindness. The next time the next time you find yourself wanting to be the winner like having to win the argument or come up with another more clever idea. I don't know if you're familiar with this in yourself or you've seen it in other people. Maybe it's maybe it's mainly a male thing, I don't know, but women can probably come up with their own equivalent. There's one-upmanship. There's always wanting to be better and, and put the other person down. And you, get, you find yourself getting caught up in that. If your awareness shines some light on that, exercise kindness. Or if you feel just this whole thing of trying to be impressive, just trying to impress somebody, and whether it's something you write or something you say, and exercise patience. So, in other words, going against the habits of our conditioning. As we were saying before, it's very easy to blame the person who puts the water jug down. All I have to do is just turn the gong three centimetres and it's over. We just have to redirect the light of attention inwards and see, what am I hanging on to? We don't have to always be somebody. We can be nobody. Remember an occasion when when Ajahn Chah came over to visit us at Wat Nana Chart. Now, this was in the very early days of Wat Nana Chart. And, uh, I think it was maybe the first or second year that we were there, and Ajahn Chah lived only a few miles away, and 
Sometimes he would especially come over to see us and on this occasion he was there at evening puja and he gave a Dhamma talk and and I can remember him talking about he, he you know, we built this new big Dhamma hall and there was a great big brass Buddha image there and, and he pointed to it and he says, you know, practice doesn't mean trying to become like that. He says, what you want to do is be an earthworm. So, you know, just be an earthworm. He says, the darkness in front of you, just munch away on that. Let that be your practice. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Dhammayang Dhammawadakata Sadhukaranga Dhammasing